Hi guys, this is H. Who is Hosea Knowlton? 46 at the time of the boarding trial, Hosea Morrill Knowlton was born in Durham, Maine on May 20th, 1847. He was the eldest son of Reverend Dr. Isaac Case Knowlton, the pastor of the Universalist Church in New Bedford, Massachusetts. A devotion to faith in which he was raised appears to have characterized and defined Hosea Knowlton's life. He belonged to the Universalist Society from 1872, was superintendent of a Universalist Sunday school for three decades, and acted as church society treasurer. The Universalist denomination originated in the 18th century and teaches it is God's purpose to save every individual from sin through divine grace revealed in Jesus. He belonged to the Universalist Society from 1872, was superintendent of a Universalist Sunday School for three decades, and acted as, churches, as church society treasurer. The Universalist denomination originated in the 18th century and teaches it is God's purpose to save every individual from sin through divine grace revealed in Jesus. The church's official creed include the statement, we believe that holiness and true happiness are inseparably connected and that believers ought to be careful to maintain order and practice good works for these things are good and profitable unto men. Hosea Knowlton went to high school in Maine, New Hampshire, and finally Massachusetts. He attended Tufts University from which he graduated in 1867. As salutatorian of his class, he later became a trustee of his alma mater, earned a law degree at Harvard, and was admitted to the bar in 1870, practicing law in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Knowlton served as Register of Bankruptcy from 1872 to 1878, was on the New Bedford School Committee from 1874 to 1877, and was City Solicitor in 1877. Knowlton served in the Massachusetts House of Representatives from 1876 to 1877. From the House, he won office in the State Senate where he served from 1878 to 1879. He was district attorney of the Southern District of Massachusetts at the time of the Borden murders in 1893 and would remain in that capacity until the following year. Knowlton's personality was one that was unafraid to try new things. He was noted for being the first lawyer in New Bedford, Massachusetts to employ a stenographer and ride a bicycle, although not much is written about his hobbies. This fondness for bicycle riding may also indicate an in interest for exercise in the outdoors. 
thoughtfulness and consideration appear to have been some of his other qualities. It was reported that many of his good deeds were done under the cover of a gruffness that hid a very tender heart. Journalist William M. Emery said of him, he was ever ready to do a favor for a friend. One day, during a superior court session in the city, I sat as a reporter on guard in an anteroom longing for a cigar and regretting stores were too far distant. Mr. Knowlton did not have a cigar in his pockets, but said, I'll get you one. Going into the courtroom, he quickly returned with a desired smoke, remarking, I wheedled this off the high sheriff for you. Emery goes on to say that when Hosea Knowlton was under stress, he might speak tersely or brusquely, but elaborates that overall he possessed a winning personality. Knowlton's grandson, General William Knowlton, described his grandfather's physical appearance as not more than medium height and having a robust figure, an impressive presence, a deep voice with hair and a beard sandy color, although he kept himself clean-shaven in the later years of his life. Hosea Knowlton was also a music lover. He was first president of the Madrigal, the Madrigal Society, a position he held for 17 years. General Knowlton writes, he had some ability at the piano and would play a polka, and his children and their young friends would dance and states that he once filled in for an absent organist at the Universal's church he attended. Hosea married Sylvia Bassett Almy. Sylvia had been a school teacher before their marriage. The couple had seven children, four boys, and three girls. Knowlton's questioning of Lizzie at the Borden inquest shows him to have been a clear and precise examiner, yet his persistence as a questioner is what sets him apart from the average prosecutor. This talent is strikingly illustrated by the following passage from the inquest, when he questions Lizzie's story of having slowly eaten some pears in the barn during the time her father was killed. Knowlton found this tale suspicious. Question. You were feeling better than you did in the morning? Better than I did that night. You were feeling better than you were in the morning. I felt better in the morning than I did that night. That is not what I asked you. You were then, when you were in that hot loft, looking out the window and eating three pears, feeling better, were you not? than you were in the morning when you could not eat any breakfast? I never eat any breakfast. You did not answer my question, and you will if I have to put it all day. Were you then, when you were eating those three pears in the hot loft, looking out of that closed window, feeling better than you were in the morning when you ate no breakfast? I was feeling well enough to eat pears. Were you feeling better than you were in the morning? 
I don't think I felt very sick in the morning, only, yes, I don't know, but I did feel better, as I say. I don't know whether I ate any breakfast or not, or whether I ate a cookie. Were you then feeling better than you did in the morning? I don't know how to answer you, because I told you I felt better in the morning anyway. Do you understand my question? My question is whether, when you were in the loft at that barn, you were feeling better than you were in the morning when you got up. No, I felt about the same. Knowlton apparently took on this famous case with reluctance. According to David Kent in 40 Wax, after being informed by the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Albert Pillsbury, that he, Knowlton, would be chief prosecutor for the Lizzie Borden case. He wrote to Pillsbury, Personally, I would like very much to get rid of the trial of the case and fear that my own feelings in that direction may have influenced my better judgment. Hmm? I feel this all the more upon your not... I feel this all on me. Later in the same letter, Knowlton stated that he did not anticipate a conviction, remarking that there is a very reasonable expectation of a verdict of not guilty. More alarmingly, he indicated that neither he nor Pillsbury believed they had the full facts of the case, writing, Nothing has developed which satisfies either of us that she is innocent. Neither, neither of us can escape the conclusion that she must have had some knowledge of this occurrence. This admission indicates uh, an intention to prosecute despite the sense that neither of them was confident they possessed the full story of the case. Some knowledge of the occurrence is not the same as Lizzie having planned and committed the acts entirely by herself. As an attorney, Knowlton's skills were not limited to his ability to incisely incisively question. He could also be eloquent in his arguments. In the trial, he remarked, that aged man, that aged woman, had gone by the noonday of their lives. They had borne the burden and the heat of the day. They had accumulated a competency which they felt would carry them through their waning years of their lives. And hand in hand, they expected to go down the sunset of their happiness and quiet and happiness. But for that crime, they would be enjoying the air of this day. Knowlton could likewise be astute, as when he ridiculed the possibility of a killer coming in from the outside the household. During the summation of the trial, he stated, Never mind the impossibility for the present of imagining a person who was so familiar with the habits of that family, who was so familiar with the interior of that house, who could foresee the things that the family themselves could not see, who was so lost to all human reason, who was so utterly criminal as to act without any motive whatsoever, as to have gone to that house that morning, to have penetrated through the cordon of Bridget and Lizzie, and pursued that poor woman up the stairs to her death and then waited, whipping in hand, until the house should be filled up with people again. 
that he might complete his work. The assumption that an outside killer would have no motive whatsoever is a rhetorical flourish unwarranted by facts. A murderer from the outside from outside the household might have had a motive that the authorities have had to ferret out. Milton also made a well-taken point at the trial about how Lizzie might benefit from class prejudices by contrasting her with Bridget Sullivan. One woman, Bridget, is poor and friendless, a domestic, a servant, uneducated, and without friends, and the other, Lizzie, is bustrous by all that social rank and wealth and friends and counsel can do for her protection. Supposing those things have been suggested against Lizzie Borden, had been found against Bridget Sullivan, poor, friendless girl. Supposing she had told wrong stories, supposing she had put up an impossible alibi, supposing she had put up a dress that never was worn that morning at all, and when the coils were tightening around her and burned a dress up that it should not be seen, what would you think of Bridget? Is there one law for Bridget and another for Lizzie? God forbid. Just as Lizzie's lawyers would attempt to use sexist stereotypes of pro-female character on Lizzie's behalf, Knowlton tried to use anti-female sexist prejudices to her detriment. In his summation at trial, he tried to use the idea of feminine wiles to persuade, to persuade the all-male jury to overlook the fact that all witnesses agreed she was neither bloodstained nor even disheveled when they saw her right after the brutal murders. How had she appeared clean and neat as a pin after viciously slashing her father ten times? I cannot answer it, Nolan said to the jurors. You cannot answer it. You, neither murderers nor women, you have neither the craft of the assassination nor the cunning and deafness of the sex. Although Lizzie's inquest testimony was excluded from the trial, many of the public read it while the trial was still in progress as it was published in its entirety in the New Bedford Evening Standard on Monday, June 12th. In fact, it was Hosea Knowlton who had provided the standard with a copy of Lizzie's inquest testimony, subject to release the moment it was admitted or excluded. While the boarding trial ended in defeat for Knowlton, he was soon to know a major triumph when he won election as Massachusetts Attorney General, replacing Arthur Pillsbury. He would be re-elected four times to serve five terms, while Attorney General Slater to urge the abolition of capital punishment, he proved to be one of the, the foremost advocates for its elimination. His articulate views argued that the punishment of murder by death does not tend to diminish or prevent that crime, and that the death penalty is a relic of barbarianism, which the community must surely outgrow. As it has already outgrown the rack, the whipping post, and the stake, he contended with renowned strenuousness that the statute for the death penalty is not in accord with our civilization, nor is it wise in policy. 
Perhaps Knowlton's position was partially influenced by a sense that juries, such as one in the Lizzie Boarding case, might be reluctant to convince to convict a defendant knowing a guilty verdict would lead to the person's death. When one examines the trial itself, there is little doubt that a great deal was going on that had little to do with gender and a great deal to do with class and social connections. You see, Fall River was a close-knit community and the Bordens were prominent members. The judge at the first hearing had known the family and was distressed to the point of tears at having to remand Lizzie to trial. The district attorney, Hosea Knowlton, had known Andrew Borden. Knowlton was called upon to lead the prosecu prosecution despite the relationship to the family. Another family acquaintance was Judge Albert Mason, whose duty as chief justice was to pick up the panel of judges. He was to pick up the panel of judges to preside on the actual trial. He prominently chose himself. In addition, he selected Justin Dewey, a choice that had raised a few eyebrows. Dewey had been appointed to the bench by then-Governor George Robinson, who now happened to be the lead attorney on Borden defense team. Robinson had also served on an important judiciary committee with Mason. The political ties between the defense and two of the judges might not have biased the court, but it certainly left the doors open for such accusations. You see, the trial, the prosecution was at a disadvantage before the trial had even begun. This might ha not have mattered in a routine case, but since the evidence against Borden was almost entirely circumstantial, the prestige of the defense was of no little importance. Every circumstance could be either a sign of guilt or a simple coincidence, depending upon the argument built from it. And the experienced, enthusiastic arguers were on the defense team. In reconstructing the narrative of the trial, today, a woman of good social position, of hereto unquestioned character, a member of a Christian church, and active in its good works, the own daughter of one of the victims, is at the bar of this court, accused by the grand jury of this county of these crimes. There is no language, gentlemen, at my command, which can better measure the solemn importance of the inquiry from which you are about to begin than this simple statement of fact for the sake of these crimes and for the sake of these accusations, every man may well pause at the threshold of the trial and carefully search his understanding and conscience for any vestige of prejudgment and finding it cast aside as an unclean thing. Having said this, however, Moody almost immediately used depictions of Lizzie's family life that could only be taken as a sign of guilt in the defendant. Oh, only be signs of guilt if the defendant was a female. The jury warned that gender should not be used to find Borden innocent, was encouraged to use it to find her suspicious. 
Moody promised that future witnesses would testify to various details of the story, but made the effort to conclude remarks that showed that Borden's relationship to her family was unnatural. You cannot fail, I think, to be impressed in the respect with what will appear as the method of living of this family. It would appear later on the evidence that although they occupied the same household, there was built up, there was a wall built up between them by locks and bolts and bars, almost an impassable wall. So in conclusion, Hosea Knowlton is very progressive. He he believes everyone is equal. He believes men and women women are the same. He believes there should be no death penalty. He believes that if a crime is committed, it doesn't matter who you are. Anyone can commit a crime. And that was very, very, very different for the time period. So on the one hand, Knowlton, I like him. I, I like who he is. On the other hand, I don't like the way he questions Lizzie. Personally, I find it appalling. I think some of the words he uses are harsh. And I don't think that there should be a trial with judges and lawyers and everyone surrounding the case against Lizzie Bourdain being friends or familiar with the victim in this crime. It's unfair. And so I, I struggle. I struggle with where I'm at right now. And we'll see what happens next. <laughs> So while I like Hosea, I do, I like him as a man. I like him as a human being. I don't like the way he's questioning Lizzie. I don't like the judges, all of them being related to the victim. It's unfair. So we'll see where it goes. And I'm learning and I hope you're learning too. And we're learning together. See you next time, guys.